Well, today we're continuing our study in the book of Acts. So take a Bible and turn to the book of Acts, which is the fifth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're going to look at one of the most exciting experiences the Christian church has ever experienced. That's on page 1692 in the Pew Bible, 1692. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2 and at least cover verses 1 through 4. The day of Pentecost. Very exciting. It's so, so much ideas there that I almost don't know where to start. But one of the first things we do when we open the Word of God is pray. So let's ask for God's help. Gracious God, we thank You for the amazing gift of the Holy Spirit. Third person of the Godhead. Almighty God who can energize and empower, revive, and refresh Your people. Help us to realize, Lord, that when we talk of the Holy Spirit, we're not just talking of of power, we're talking of person. Somebody who wants to dwell within us and empower us to advance Your cause on planet Earth. Bless us now, Lord, as we open Your Word. Uh, help it to come alive and be relevant to the lives of each one of us. For we ask this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. On the day of Pentecost, disciples who were running scared a short time before were empowered for ministry. We have seen as we've opened the book of Acts, some of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, even in the Gospel of Luke. Turn to the end of the Gospel of Luke. Keep your finger in Acts chapter 2. I'm not going to dwell on these verses for very long because we've touched on them before. Right at the end of the Gospel of Luke, in verse 48. Well, we'll back up to 46. This is what is written, Jesus says, the Christ, the Messiah Himself, will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what My Father has promised. That's what we're going to deal with today. The fulfillment of this promise. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And again, as we go over to the beginning of the book of Acts, we see some words very similar. Verse 4 of chapter 1. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. That doesn't mean be passive. We're waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ. Does it mean that we're passive? Absolutely not. We're supposed to be busy for the Lord. But there is a waiting period. Wait for the gift my Father promised which you have heard me speak about. For disciples, this would mean be waiting in prayer. It would be, mean waiting in praise. But they needed something that they didn't have. Wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. John baptized with water, but in a few days 
you will be baptized with what? With the Holy Spirit. And again in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now I wonder which text would come to mind when Jesus says the Holy Spirit to the disciples. If you think back to the Gospel of John, John chapter 14, chapter 16, Jesus spoke a lot about the Holy Spirit. Let me um, share some text with you from the Old Testament. I want you to understand that what is going to happen, what we're studying today, is a fulfillment of prophecy. Now we will, as we go through Peter's sermon next week, we will see some text like Joel that he will mention. But I have some other texts which I think are very important as well. In the book of Ezekiel, there are two or three passages there that I think may have come, certainly would have been in Jesus' mind, and possibly in the minds of the disciples. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, this is on page 1345 in the Pew Bibles. He's talking about um, gathering the Jewish people from all countries and bringing them back into their own land. Verse 25 of chapter 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from your, from your idols. I will give you a new heart. Somebody, uh, I think it was Norman, asked in our class this morning, well, what's the difference between Saul and Paul? That's the difference right there. A new heart, a moving of the Holy Spirit, what Jesus would call, uh, mentioned to Nicodemus, as the new birth, being born from above. The work of the Holy Spirit, so important. So, I'll give you a new heart, verse 26. Put a new spirit in you and I will move from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. What would you sooner have, a heart of stone? Doesn't sound very good, does it? We may not know what it means, but it sure doesn't sound good. A heart of stone or a heart of flesh that the Holy Spirit can work in. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And though this is not really part of the sermon, it is important when God places His Holy Spirit in us, He gives us a desire to obey Him. He gives us a de desire to keep His laws. So we don't want any, any tension, any separation between the work of the Holy Spirit and the life of God of obedience, which includes keeping God's laws. Ezekiel chapter 37, the whole chapter, is talking about dead bones coming alive. How can this possibly be? And it's only when God breathes on those bones, when God puts life into them, that they come alive with flesh and with sinews and so on. This is what the life giver does 
So when you think, talk of the Holy Spirit, there's many, many ways of looking at the Holy Spirit. Some will talk of the Holy Spirit, well, not so much in context of a person, but of power. It's like this power going through electrical cables here. They'll talk of the Holy Spirit as power. Maybe it's better to talk of the Holy Spirit as one of His characteristics as being power, power to create life on planet Earth, to create new life um, in, in our lives. But He is more than power. He's not neutral. He's a person. We can have a relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through, via the Holy Spirit. And then finally in, in um, chapter 39 and verse 29 of Ezekiel, I will no longer hide my face from them, God says, for I will pour up my Spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Sovereign Lord. So those are some texts outside of Joel. I'm going to skip Joel today because we will be coming back to Joel later. But there are texts in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament that talk of a moving of the Holy Spirit. Something unusual. Something exceptional. We can think of, of the day of Pentecost as something that um, is out of the norm. Maybe in the context of Revival and Reformation. Anyway, let's read the text. Acts 2, verses 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit enabled them. So we'll deal with those verses, at least those four verses today. So the timing, what, what, is, what is the time of this? We're not actually sure of the place. Was it the upper room? Was it a house? Was it in the temple precincts? We're not sure. But what we are sure is the timing. It was the day of what? Pentecost. What does the day of Pentecost, what does Pentecost represent? Well, in our minds, it represents obviously this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But in one of the books that I was reading, it says we could look at the whole, we can look at the day of Pentecost in two, two ways. We can look at it as having agricultural meaning. And we can look at it as having historical meaning. So on the agricultural, this author says this, Originally it was the middle of the three annual Jewish harvest festivals and was called either the Feast of Harvest because it celebrated the completion of the grain harvest or the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost because it took place seven weeks or 50 days. So the Greek word is Pentecostos. Pente, five or fifty there, fiftieth day after Passover, which was then when the grain harvesting began. But then he throws this in. Towards the end of the intertestamental period, however, do you know when the intertestamental period was? I actually preached a sermon on the intertestamental period once. 
And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting period of time. It's a lot of history. It's between the Testaments, intertestamental between the Testaments. The end of the Old Testament, beginning of the New Testament, period of how long? About 400 years. Don't hear too many sermons on that, do you? However, it also began to be observed as the anniversary of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Because this was reckoned as having happened 50 days after the Exodus. So the agricultural emphasis, the gathering in of the harvest, that makes a whole lot of sense. That's easy for us to understand that. God is going to have a harvest of souls. Jesus has sowed the seed. More would come into the church on the day of Pentecost than in all of his three years of ministry. The apostles, the prophets, from many, many ages back have sowed the seed. And now on the day of Pentecost, there would be a great Jewish harvest. The agricultural side of it, pretty easy to see. The law side of it, we don't often think so much. Luke certainly doesn't develop that idea. But on Mount Sinai, when the giving of the law, you had the sound, right? You had the fire. You had the speech. And all of those characteristics are in our passage that we're going to look at this morning. The emphasis by Dr. Luke is not on the fire. It's not on the wind. But it is on the speech. And if we continued studying what we will cover next week, then we will see how important this speech is. There are different ways of looking at Pentecost besides what I've just mentioned, the agricultural and the historical. Some look on the day of Pentecost as the beginning of the early Christian church. I don't explain it that way because I don't believe that. I don't really agree with that but many people do see it that way. Um, it could be looked at as the final act of the saving ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ before the parousia. When is the parousia? Second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a word that is used for that. So the final act in the, in the, on the Lord Jesus Christ before the parousia. Others look on the day of Pentecost as equipping the apostles and more than the apostles for ministry and for witness. It is obviously at least that. Others look on the day of Pentecost as the inauguration of a new era of the Holy Spirit. In the past, you and I could study the Old Testament, see what it says about the Holy Spirit, and it does say quite a bit about the Holy Spirit, but it tends to be very isolated. We have nothing in comparison with the day of Pentecost. So I can imagine the Holy Spirit as He worked in the life of Jesus, as He was there in the death of Jesus, as He was there in the resurrection of Jesus and in the ascension of Jesus and in the exaltation of Jesus, now it's my turn to take over. Well, really not take over as perhaps some of our Pentecostal and charismatic friends would explain it. 
but rather to bring the presence of Jesus. Remember I emphasized that, was it last week? Jesus is going away. This troubled the disciples. We can see that clearly in the Gospel of John. But Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away. Well, who could possibly even begin to understand such a statement? On the day of Pentecost, and in the last 2,000 years, we can begin to understand that statement. Because the Holy Spirit can bring the presence of Jesus, the presence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, into the life of each individual on planet Earth. And that couldn't take place in the plan and the purpose of God until these historical events had happened in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're in a new age of the Holy Spirit. Some would call that the Messianic age. Some would call that the last days. As we work our way through Peter's speech in Acts chapter 2, next week and probably the following weeks, we will see, he says, this is a fulfillment, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a fulfillment that's going to happen in the last days. The last days started when? Don't dare say 1844 to me. Don't dare say 1798 to me. Tell me what the Bible says. Always be biblical. The Bible says, and we'll study it, it's your homework for next week, find out when the last days started. And you'll see it right there in Acts chapter 2. In the text. Started in the, in the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ brought in the end of the age, the last days. The messianic age. And in the context of what we're talking about this morning, the age of the Holy Spirit. And also, some look on the day of Pentecost, and I think this fits in so perfectly with the time of revival and reformation, which of course is a burden for some in the Seventh-day Adventist church and has been for many years. Take it all the way back to the days of Ellen White, go back to the days of Robert Pearson, Neil Wilson, now Ted Wilson, and on and on and on it goes. Many, many articles, much emphasis doesn't always come through to the local church, I realize, but the emphasis is there. Maybe it should be a stronger emphasis. Maybe we're not taking God seriously enough, but I'm glad that at least some people are trying to lay that kind of emphasis. It's very important, folks, that we realize that the mandate that's been given to the Seventh-day Adventist church, we cannot do it because we're talented. We cannot do it because we have an organization and we have a system or we have money. We cannot do it because we have media. We need the Holy Spirit to finish this work. It cannot be done under man's power. It's with people that have God's power in their lives. Yes, He wants to use you and I so much, much more than we can even begin to understand. But there is a waiting period as there was for these disciples. And even though we live in the age of the Spirit, for some reason God will not anoint us on regular basis with His Holy Spirit. 
while small, petty things take up our interest. If we're fascinated with the latest program that's coming on, on TV, and if that's where we're giving our time, don't expect an anointing of the Holy Spirit. We have to kind of clear the table, clear the deck, and allow God to be God. The greatest days, this is such an encouragement for me, the greatest days in the Seventh-day Adventist church are yet to come. Do not interpret Pentecost by what you see in the church today because there is no comparison. Does that mean to say that there cannot be a comparison? No. There should be a comparison. It should be the norm that every Seventh-day Adventist understands the work of the Holy Spirit. It should be the norm that we have regular anointings, daily baptisms of the Holy Spirit. So here's, here's attention, and here's something we need to be careful with. Yes, this is unusual. Yes, this is exceptional when we talk of the day of Pentecost. But should it stay in the realm of the exceptional? Should we not be seeing miracles and conversions in a local church? Why should we not be seeing that? Do we believe that the age of the Holy Spirit was just in this period of the first century? No, we don't believe that as Seventh-day Adventists. And actually, most churches don't believe that. Most churches, even if they feel the gifts stay in the first century, and some do teach that. I had a pastor in my office once who was trying to rent from us, and uh, somehow, some way, this, this topic came up. And uh, I wasn't trying to make him feel uncomfortable or anything, but he said a few things that just didn't make sense to me. And so I tried to give him a more biblical perspective, and it really confused him. And he said, well, I need to think about that one. No, we believe in the perpetuity of spiritual gifts, at least until Christ comes back, because God's kingdom has to expand. And as the Holy Spirit works amongst God's people, one of the evidences that is, of course, the exercising of spiritual gifts. So revival, reformation, yes, an unusual visitation of God in which whole communities, that's what we mean by revival. We're not talking about an individual revival. We're talking about a community revival outside of the church walls. becomes aware of God's presence. And as I said, what we normally can consider as the exceptional whether it be a revival in the first century, in the 19th century, or in our century, should be more normal. I mean, after all, think of the mandate. This whole globe, this whole planet, billions and billions of people. Could any of the apostles ever even begin to understand how many people would be living on planet Earth? before Jesus Christ comes back. Very few of them, if any of them, had ever been outside Palestine. They would have a very limited perspective. And God would try and expand their horizons. Seventh-day Adventists, the same thing. 19th century Adventism, 
had a North American perspective. North America was the great melting pot. All the representatives of the different nations were living in North America. And then slowly but surely, God would expand their understanding and give them a more global perspective. So if you're going to evangelize over 4 billion people, you need a mighty moving of the Holy Spirit to do that. And not only is it blasphemous to think that we can do it in our own strength, but it's not even common sense to think that that could be done. Let me throw in um, some other text before we move on. I want you to go to John, the Gospel of John. I'll give you the page reference in a, mo in a moment. I want you to see how much this day of Pentecost is a work of Jesus. And there's really nothing happening that Jesus has not spoken about, that Jesus has not tried to prepare his church for. In John 1, verse 33, on page 1647, it's talking about John the Baptist and Jesus. And John says in verse 32, I saw the Spirit coming down from heaven as a dove and remain on Him. Did Jesus need this anointing of the Holy Spirit? Or was it just enough to be the Son of God? He was starting His public ministry, right? At his baptism, he was starting his public ministry. He was sinless. Nobody in this room is sinless. If anybody didn't need the Holy Spirit, it would be the Lord Jesus Christ. The sinless one. The perfect one. But notice how important it is for the Holy Spirit to work in his life and how much more you and I. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. So God had told him, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain, he, who is this? This is Jesus. Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And we have similar texts in the book of Mark and in the book of Matthew. So who is the baptizer of the Holy Spirit it is the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we said about Jesus Christ ascending and being exalted, Jesus, I'm sure there's no reason to think that the Father's not part of this, but let's just focus on Jesus for the moment. Jesus is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. How is that advantageous? Well, that brings via the Holy Spirit, that brings the Lord Jesus Christ into the life of every believer personal relationship through the Holy Spirit with the Lord Jesus Christ. So one way of explaining this is that in days of old, think of the Garden of Eden, think of the sanctuary, think of the tabernacle. God was over us. 
and seem somewhat distant. In the New Testament, God is among us in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ. But hey, they killed him. And he ascended to heaven after the resurrection and disappeared. But at Pentecost, God is in us. So that is a valid emphasis, I believe. Especially when we tie it in with John chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. John 14. 18 through 20. These are very, very important texts to understand the work of the Holy Spirit. And I have no problem tying this in with the day of Pentecost or with any moving of the Holy Spirit uh, in terms of revival. In John chapter 14, verses 18 to 20, the Lord Jesus Christ says, um, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. And because I live, you will live also. So here's the life giver. The Holy Spirit, the life giver, coming to the believer. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father. We have no problem with that, even though we don't fully understand it. And you are in me. That is challenging. And I am in you. Did Jesus have bodily form in heaven? How can he be in us? The only way that that is possible is through the work of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching, my Father will love him, and we, plural, will come to him and make our home with him. Those are powerful texts. I can see a couple of sermons emerging from those already. So when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Was there a unity? Well, we don't get the unity necessarily from that phrase there. They were all together in one place. That just means that they're in some kind of physical location together. But there was a unity there. In the waiting period, unity had been developed. We don't always see, in fact, we don't see very much of that unity before Pentecost, do we? We see, tend to see disciples and apostles kind of arguing with one another and fighting with one another. There were some egos that were there that needed to be taken care of. By the way, that's one of the most important things you can ever do in your Christian life. If you're taking someone under your wing and you're discipling them, help them to deal with the ego problem. Young Christians need to deal with the ego because the last thing you want is for an older Christian to still have problems with the ego, especially in the context of ministry. That's a huge, huge issue. So ego problem seems to have been taken care of in preparation for Pentecost. We know that there was a big emphasis on prayer, as I mentioned earlier, big emphasis on praise. They were in the temple praising. So they're getting the right mix here. The focus is not about, it's about me. No, it's about Jesus. And it's about his mission. And it's about taking this good news of Jesus to all the world, whatever that might mean. And it's about having the power and the presence of God upon us. 
And anybody with, a, with, with ego problems, anybody who, who is proud and arrogant is not going to have that presence of God. They're just incompatible. Right? So you know all the emphasis in Scripture on holiness and trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. This is the way to cultivate the presence of God. The Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Ask God to make it. We don't always know what God's will is, but many times we do know what God's will is. To trust in Him, to have faith in Him, to humility, and so on and so forth. All of those qualities in the Beatitudes. Lord, make those things happen in my life. Oh, God must love to answer prayers like that. And if He does answer those prayers, again, it will be via the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's harvest time. The day of Pentecost came. They were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Do you remember when Jesus was talking with Nicodemus, which is probably the most extensive passage in the whole Scripture on this, this regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. When Nicodemus would kind of seem confused, and well, what are you talking about? Being born again or being born from above? Do I go back into my mother's womb? Jesus would kind of gently correct this man, rebuke him really, and, and say, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Let's turn to that passage. Some of you may not know exactly what I'm talking about in the Gospel of John. Chapter 3. And we're on page 1649 and 1650. Right at the bottom, verse 10. After Nicodemus was asked, how can this be? Jesus talked about the importance of the Spirit. You must be born of the Spirit. In verse uh, 3, you must be born again. Verse 5, uh, born of water and, and of the Spirit. So all of this, this born business and this Spirit business kind of confused Nicodemus. It may confuse some people here this morning. That's why I'm looking at this passage. Um, and Jesus is talking about it. And he says in verse 8, here's the wind now. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. And still Nicodemus is scratching his uh, pharisaical head and saying, how can this be? And I'll admit, it's not the easiest thing to talk in human terms about spiritual work. We're, we're, we're moving into a different realm, aren't we? We're going away from the flesh and blood, natural, physical, material stuff that you can touch. That's most, of us, most of us live on that level. We're talking about a different life, a spiritual life, which for the Christian is, is where they operate when they're born again. Now it's true, a lot of the material and carnal comes into, into the Christian life, and we need to learn to, to work with the Holy Spirit uh, and, and uh, overcome 
that emphasis. But essentially, when we're born again, we become spiritual creatures. That's the closest on this earth before we get a, a glorified body that we will ever have. Um, and I'm sure when, when Adam and Eve, before they sinned, there was this spiritual component there before their sin. But when sin came up, we know that that got marred, that got messed up. And it's like it, it kind of put this separation between God and us. And that is, that is explained in different ways, like uh, where they're hiding behind the bushes and God comes seeking for them and then they're put out of the Garden of Eden. And it's kind of explained in many different ways in Scripture. But that's what sin does. Sin separates us from God. Now, it's not total separation as, as though there is no hope for us, but it's definite distancing between God and us. But not so when someone is born again. Now the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit make their abode in your life. Now that's a very powerful thought. And it's actually one of the greatest incentives not to sin. It's much better than a rule book approach. Rule book approach can never change you. You can modify your behavior. Well, I mustn't do this and I mustn't do that. The commandment says this and the commandment says that. Church manual says this. Well, at least the old manual did. We have a new manual now. I actually have the new church manual now. haven't had the pleasure of having that bedtime reading yet, but I have it. But that approach, my folks, doesn't cut it as far as holiness and as far as the power for a spirit-filled life. But to, to, to dwell upon, to think about God living within me is very powerful. And everything you will ever become as far as following the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, John chapter 3 is an important chapter on that. So suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. He mentions wind in John 3. That's why I referred to it. Uh, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So what we have are three supernatural signs as we work our way through this passage. Let me finish it. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Some of you have languages as a translation. As the Spirit enabled them. So three supernatural signs here. Sound, wind, power. Tongues, fire. What does fire represent? You could give different answers to that. Fire is a symbol of God throughout all of Scripture. Did you know that? Here I'm going to say it represents uh, purity. And other languages are tongues, speech. And as we carry this on next week, we will see that the emphasis is upon the speech. In fact, one of the characteristics of the whole book of Acts, which is rarely mentioned, but is really important, are the speeches. The speeches in the book of Acts. So you have a bunch of speeches by Peter. 
And you have a bunch of speeches later in the book by Paul. Those speeches are very, very important. Uh, I was talking with someone this week, and they said, yeah, we're going to go through the book of Acts up to this chapter, and then we're going we're to move on to something else. But then you miss a lot of these important speeches. And as we work our way through the speeches, this will come through hopefully next week, you'll see an incredible amount of teaching in those speeches. Very, very important material. So we're living in the day of the Spirit, right? And you'd hardly know it in the church. Someone says, well, if the Holy Spirit was suddenly taken from the church, how much would change? How much would change? Well, if we're depending on the Holy Spirit, everything. But if we're doing things in our own strength, not much. And I believe that God is still the God of miracles. He's still the God of conversion. He's still the God of taking a person that is up to their ears in sin, which really Paul was. No matter how religious he was, the guy was a rank sinner. He was having people arrested, imprisoned, and killed. It doesn't get much worse than that. And yet God can take any individual, the town drunk, it doesn't really matter who it is. You know, I've worked with uh, pastors who have had a background in, uh, in counseling and things like that, and they say, you know, some people... These uh, sex perverts and you know, there's certain sins that we have in a certain box that God really can't do a whole lot with those things. With those sinners, they're kind of psychiatry and psychology has shown they really don't change. Well, if you're talking about modification of behavior, I'll probably agree with that. But if you're talking about a thorough conversion of an individual, there is nothing, there is no depth of sin in any human's life that God cannot give them victory over. It's the same God. He hasn't changed. So we need to ask ourselves, and we're not going to deal with it at this point at the end of a sermon, but we need to ask ourselves, why is the church as we know it? And then there are parts of the world where the Seventh-day Adventist church is on fire where they are moving mountains, where many, many, many hundreds, thousands are coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I just want to see some of it here. It's nice to know about revival in the Caribbean or in Africa or inter-America or wherever it might be, but what about Anderson? What about Cottonwood? What about Reading? And if they're dying faster than we can baptize them, folks, there's something not quite right in that paradigm, right? So let's go to God with humility. With a sense of awe. These are the characteristics that we're going to see as we move through Acts chapter 2. With a spirit of praise. Lord, we're not seeing many baptisms, but here's one. Praise Him and thank Him. But that one, that one might be a Saul or a Paul. You just don't know. And Lord, if there's any sin in the camp, 
if there's anything in my life that's going to limit your working, I couldn't imagine anything worse than appearing before God on Judgment Day and realizing what could have been and what should have been. I don't want that to be so in my life. It's got nothing to do with being a pastor. It's got everything to do with being a faithful child of God and allowing God to be God in my life and in your life. So let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this, what is, which is for me, Lord, a very powerful and a very exciting time in the early Christian church. As you poured your Holy Spirit out upon a powerless church, upon a frightened church, a fearful church, and you made many, many thousands of powerful witnesses, people that loved you, would die for you if need be, would do everything they could to move heaven and earth, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for our complacency. And Lord, we ask in faith that you'll revive and you'll renew each person in this room. And each representative, all the Anderson Church family, same in Red Bluff, in Reading, in Palisadro, wherever your people are gathered, and that will remove all of the, the obstacles that get in the way, Lord, and will allow your Spirit to transform us. Fill us, Lord, even though we don't deserve it, because we need that anointing to live the Christ-like life in its totality. In Jesus' name we thank you and we praise you. And all the people said...